I'd like to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, like Jay said, we are really glad that you're with us this morning. Um, we're continuing on in the, the book of John that we've been in for the last several months, and we will continue to be in through the summer and uh, probably the fall as well. Um, today, um, we have a, uh, an interesting passage on our hands. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we're once again thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, to humans, through your word. That these words um, that we look at in the scriptures, um, we believe are your words. They're authoritative, um, and we believe they have power to change us. So we ask that you would um, do that this morning um, through, this, uh, through the word. Um, and even though the scripture is a little different this morning, I pray that we would see Jesus as he truly is, as much of the scripture describes him, and this consistency of his character that we see not only in this passage, but in other passages as well. So change us as a result of looking at this passage this morning. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So if I was to um, put kind of two um, oh. Uh, situations uh, before you, and as you all know me and know who I am and know a little bit about uh, my interests and uh, those kinds of things, my personality, um, which one of these seems most likely to be true, right? Like if I told you that I um, am soon going to be um, starting a um, sports radio talk show, right? Probably like, oh, that seems kind of like what Jeremy likes, right? Like, Jer I love sports. I like to talk about sports. I'm interested in sports. Based off of what you know about me, it's at least y'all that know me well, like that doesn't seem such a far-fetched thing, right? This is kind of consistent with who I am and what I like. If I also said um, I am going to be leading worship next week for the, the band and they're all going to be taking my lead and y'all are going to be taking my lead as you sing and worship God, you'd probably be like, I, I, don't, I don't know. That's inconsistent with who we know you to be. That's inconsistent with your character. Maybe those of you who have been here for years, um, you may be thinking, I've never seen Jeremy up there in that capacity. That's, that's strange. That's interesting. And the comparison of those two things is important today. I say that. I put those before you because today we have a passage where we need to exercise that principle about Jesus, about who he is and what we know about him. Because here's Here's the issue with today's passage, right? And you probably maybe saw the brackets up there as Jay was reading them. None of the earliest manuscripts of the scriptures have this passage in it. None of them, right? Um, most scholars, theologians that um, really are the smartest of the smart when it comes to the New Testament say that this doesn't belong in the Bible as we know it. It shouldn't be treated as scripture the way we would treat other scriptures. Now, I'll let you all, if, that, if that's shocking to you, if that's surprising to you, then I'll let you kind of catch your breath there. Before I also say to comfort you a little bit, we can say with the same measure of confidence that this story, this passage is true. It's more than likely, probably True, and I'll get into that here in a second. But what is the evidence for it not belonging? 
Okay, what is the evidence for not belonging? Well, um, several things. I'll just quickly mention a few of them. Um, The story, like I said, is missing from all the Greek manuscripts before the 5th century. So the 400 years after John wrote this letter, um, we don't have originals in the Greek for this passage. Um, All the earliest church fathers, when they're doing their commentaries on Scripture... Admit this, uh, um, omit, omit this passage um, and pass directly to John 8.12. They skip over it. Um, if you take this, verse, these, this passage out and you continue to read John 7 to 8 like we would read it, it fits super nice and smooth, and taking this out actually makes it flow better. No Eastern church father cites the passage before the 10th century when dealing with the gospel. We'll talk about the Eastern and Western church um, views here in a second. Um, When the story does start to appear a bit later in these manuscripts, it shows up in different places. Some Some of them have it in this place. Some of them have it at the end of John. Some of them even have it in Luke. So that's a problem, right? When you talk about it, it can be lined up with the other scriptures. And lastly, its style and vocabulary in the original manuscripts don't really fit the way John writes. We have a lot of writings from John to compare this passage to, and they, they just don't fit. He uses words that he doesn't use anywhere else, and that happens a lot in this passage. I think it's 11 words John uses just in these um, 12 verses that aren't anywhere else in his writings. That's unusual, okay? However, with all that being said, like I said, the, the evidence is equally as strong to say these events did actually happen. Even though the earliest translations don't have them as scripture, um, the, the writers and theologians do refer to it. They don't seem to think it's scripture, but they do refer to it as a tradition about Jesus, as something he did. It was passed around kind of orally through stories, kind of to, to talk about who he was and his character, but it wasn't Scripture. We shouldn't see this passage as authoritative as the rest of the Bible. Now, where should we see it? We should probably see it um, right under that. It's probably more authoritative than any other writing we have outside of Scripture. So it still carries a lot of weight. It still communicates a lot about the character of, of who Jesus is. And it's really consistent with what we see in Jesus from the other parts of the Gospels, namely the woman at the well in this particular, um, particular book of John. We, we covered that a few months ago, and we'll see a lot of echoes in this passage from the woman at the well. With all that being said, I want you to have confidence in the Scriptures. I want you to have confidence that the book you're holding, the Scripture, is God's Word. It's God's word. So I want to nerd out just for the next few minutes and talk to you briefly about how we come to get the Bible. I think this is a good time to do that on a Sunday morning because we're faced with that in this passage. And I'm hoping, hoping that this gives you confidence um, before we go and talk about um, this particular passage. So uh, Christians, we don't believe in, um, we believe the, the God's word is inspired by God. But we don't believe that God dictated, or the the view of dictation, that he dictated every word to the gospel writers, and then they copied what God was actually saying to them audibly. We don't believe in that. We believe in something called the verbal plenary view of Scripture. And this is kind of the orthodox view of um, inspiration throughout the centuries. Here is a, a good definition from theologian Kevin Gardner. Uh, about the organic inspiration or verbal plenary. The process by which God guided the human authors of Scripture 
working in and through their particular styles and life experiences so that what they produced was exactly what he wanted them to produce. The text is truly the work of the human authors. God did not typically dictate to them as to a stenographer, and yet the Lord stands behind it as the ultimate source. Okay, So when we say the Bible is inspired by God, this is what we mean. That God is communicated through the authors, but he, in, in, but he used their personalities. This is why um, every um, different book of the scripture, when you study it, there's different words, there's different writing styles. And that's because there's different authors um, that make up the books of the Bible. The Bible is the most transmitted, translated, and read book in human history. Until the invention of the printing press in 1453, the scriptures were passed down through handwritten copies. They were passed down through handwritten copies. Um, And all the copies of the biblical text before the printing press were called manuscripts. The original like autographs that John wrote down when he was writing this book, those are called the original autographs. People who were around John who copied down what John wrote to circulate the letters, those are what are called manuscripts. Now, here's what's amazing. Um, There are so many um, uh, um, manuscripts of the Bible, or or especially the New Testament, as compared to the number of other manuscripts from this same time. Classic works of literary um, and historical um, books and writings um, have maybe somewhere from 5 to 20 manuscripts. There were five to 20 kind of copies of the original in circulation, but for the scriptures, there are thousands of manuscripts that are copies of the original. But like many cultural artifacts throughout history, um, the, the original books of the Bible are lost forever, especially the book of John due to natural disasters, due to wars, due to cities changing hands and and governments being overthrown. And so we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of John. What we do have are thousands of hand-copied manuscripts of the original letter of John from um, uh, just a few short years after John wrote this book up to the 15th century. And to be exact, there are 5,800 manuscripts of just the book of John in museums and university libraries around the world. So when we come across a passage like this, it seems like the person who says, well, the Bible has errors, therefore it can't be trusted, right? That's a legitimate question that people have about the scriptures. And to some degree, they're right. Yeah, it does have errors. But our immediate, my immediate question will be, well, what do you mean by errors? What do you mean by that? Because example, when you, ha- when you get a, 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 an email written to you or a handwritten note or letter and there's a word misspelled or it's used wrong or there's a typo or maybe there's a word left out, you don't sit there and say, well, this person's not trustworthy. I'm going to throw this whole thing out because there's a typo. I'm going to just disregard everything that person is saying and the intent of what that person is saying because there's a, there's a, a, a letter missing here and a word missing there. We don't do that. No, these are the kind of mistakes that are made when you're transmitting something from one thing to another. When you're copying something from one thing to another, these kind of mistakes get made. And so to get the most accurate English translations, now we're talking about English, uh, um, a discipline called textual criticism emerged where they compare all these thousands of manuscripts. So the, the really, really smart people who were trained and study and have practiced this for years get together, look over all the manuscripts, and compare different verses based off of these manuscripts. Now, 
When it comes to um, Bible translation into English, you have the Eastern kind of philosophy and the Western philosophy. A guy by the name of Jerome began the Western kind of tradition when he translated the Bible into Latin in 382, right? And from this point forward, there was now a Western tradition, which was based off of Latin, and an Eastern tradition based off of Greek, <clears throat> Greek. okay? And um, our heritage, at least from um, the English translations of the Bible, come from Western Europe, or more of the Latin-influenced direction. <clears throat> the first English-translated Bible was the King James translation in 1611, and it relied more on the Latin translation because it was West <clears throat> in the Roman Empire, um, or the former Roman Empire, um, but it still relied on the Greek, but mostly on the Latin. And so, because of the, the, the writings there, the, when Jerome first translated the Bible from Latin, he actually put this passage in the scriptures. But when the textual criticism, this, this discipline began to grow, they started going back and studying the Greek manuscripts along with the Latin, all of them together, they noticed, now wait a minute, the Eastern kind of um, philosophy or tradition doesn't ever include these early on, although the Latin does. So there's a problem here, and that's why you have the brackets in our English translation, translations. Now, just to give you more confidence, it is easy to figure out what should belong in the Bible and what doesn't because you have so many manuscripts to look at. When you have 6,000 manuscripts of a passage of Scripture, it's pretty easy to determine, okay, what's an outlier, right? If 5,900 have a certain um, way they're saying something and these hundred are all different here and there, you have a pretty good, um, it's pretty good evidence that the 5,900 are right. It's right, kind of the rule of majority. And this is how textual criticism works. Now, that's just a brief overview that helps us understand how we took the original manuscripts, autographs that John wrote, they were copied by scribes and theologians in the early centuries, and we have a bunch of those copies for the whole scriptures, right? And textual critics sit down and they study those when they're translating into English, right? But we do have a tradition coming from the King James Bible that was translated over, um, what is that, 400 years ago that we get a lot of our um, English translations are based off of. So when you see those brackets, there's some disagreement in one of those steps, okay? So maybe more information than you wanted to know, but when we say, when I stand up here and say, this passage shouldn't be in the Bible, one of my concerns is, well, now, what, should, should we throw all of the Bible out? Is it all worthless now? No. That's why the English, English translations are really good. When you see those brackets, when you see notes, it doesn't come up much, but when you do, that's, that's what's happening here. There's a disagreement somewhere in the, the transmission, copying, translation, something. Now, let's get to the text, because this is a wonderful um, text. Again, maybe, probably not biblical, but it's still a wonderful example, probably a true story of how Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and with this woman. Let's look at verse 53. They went into his own house, verse 1 of 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring Against him. 
So let's kind of set the scene here. You have the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees. They've brought this woman to um, this crowd. Jesus is teaching, and they just kind of abruptly bring this woman in. And it says in the midst or in the middle. So they're trying to make this kind of public spectacle of what this, what this woman has done. And notice that even in verse 3, it says a woman who had been caught in adultery. It's almost like they set this up. They set this up to where they could catch um, this woman in the act. And even the way they're speaking about her teacher, this woman, no mention of her name, no, no, no gentleness. It's just she's an object in this situation. And the next question is, they're not even interested in holding the man accountable, right? Like if you have adultery, you have two people, right? Two people are involved in that. But they're only putting the woman on this kind of public, it's not even a trial, just this, this, this shame, shame-inducing um, occasion here. And, they, now, and even, John even tells us, but they weren't interested in really even a trial or even carrying out punishment. They might not have been interested in even stoning the woman. They were using this situation, using the woman, making her an object to test Jesus, causing her shame, causing her guilt, all unnecessarily publicly so they could try to, to try to trap Jesus, try to trick Jesus with this kind of intellectual problem. They bring the woman and her sin out in public, and they don't really consider her um, what she's feeling or what this brings up in this situation. Now, if I just want to say quickly, um, if there is, um, if, if we, we don't condone at all men using their power to uh, kind of put women in their place like this in a domineering way, right? And maybe some of you have been victim to that. And so reading this story, I just want to acknowledge that if this brings up those negative feelings for you, I'm sorry. And we want to be a church that stands up for victims in these type of situations. And this can happen for men or for women. uh, But this is particular speaking about a woman who's kind of the victim here, at least in how the Pharisees are treating her. Um, she's not without fault. We'll get to that here in a second. But I just want to mention that, that we, are, take, we take serious this kind of thing. This, this should not happen. This is not normal. And that often gets overlooked when we look at a text like this. Now, they bring up the Jewish law, the Mosaic law, and they are right about this. Look at Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 24. It says this, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay. Now here's the test. Here's the test that they're putting before Jesus. If Jesus um, just shows compassion to the woman and doesn't address the sin, they can make the charge against him that, oh, you're claiming to be God and you don't even care about God's law. How can you claim to be God and not even care about what God says in his law? That's a problem, right? They know that. So if he shows all compassion, forgets about the law, that's a tough position. That's inconsistent with him saying, I am the son of God. And I am uh, my, my father in this language we've seen all throughout the last few chapters. Now, on the flip side, though, if Jesus agrees with them, if Jesus says, yeah, stone the woman, 
and she, he doesn't show compassion at all to this woman in the moment, then he knows this will kill his following. He ceases to be loving. He looks mean-spirited in that moment, and he loses a following, probably kills the momentum of this kind of this crowd that's following him, which plays right into the Pharisees' hands because they don't like this. So this is the, this is the plan, right? This is the trap. They think he has to either reject the law or reject mercy. He can't have it both ways. At least that's what they think. And we can see ourselves in this situation. I think John includes this, and maybe not John included it, but um, other people included this in the scriptures. And it's important for us because I think we can put ourselves in the situation of the Pharisees and the woman, right? We've been, I think we've been guilty of both. Obviously, we've been guilty of sin at some point in our life, right? We've all brought, broken God's law in some area, either committing something that God's law prohibits or not doing something that God's law commands, like good things, right? We are all guilty of sin, period, right? We are, we're born with a sin nature. So we can put ourselves in the, the place of this woman, even though maybe we're not guilty of this particular sin. However, we're all, we are all like the religious leaders and Pharisees in some ways. We are all prone to establishing our righteousness by rule-keeping. And I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians here, right? Like, think of a rule that you have for others. We all have them, Right? They could be silly, right? The silly rules. Maybe, maybe they're, it's not good or bad, it's just neutral, but you've turned it into a rule. These are usually rules that you, you're good at, so that way you can kind of be really good at a rule and you can use that rule to condemn others, right? Maybe you're a, a very punctual person and you, wanna, you just think people who are chronically late are awful. Like you want to condemn people who are late. You think that's a moral imperative that people show up on time. Well, really, that's a cultural norm. That, that's, there's no morality to that. It's just cult, the, the different cultures see time differently, right? But we're tempted to turn that into a moral imperative. Maybe you expect um, a text should be returned within five minutes of sending it. You're like, why is that person not texting me back yet? They must be screening my text. They must be ignoring me. They must think that what I'm texting is not important. You can make it, turn it into a morality. Maybe you think the dirty dishes should immediately be put in the sink when they're dirty, they shouldn't be left on the cabinet. They shouldn't be left on the table. They should immediately go into the sink, maybe even the dishwasher immediately, right? Y'all can talk about that at home if there's um, elbowing going on out there. Um, you can moralize your parenting philosophies, right? We all have different ways we think we should raise kids. We can moralize those and think everyone else is wrong and I've got the right way here. Where we know the scriptures have kind of a wide variety of things to say about parenting. Mine for example, is, and I find myself as, as <laughs> I have kids and I get older, never thought I'd be this way, but I'm kind of turning into my dad in this way. Like when the kids hold the door open, especially when it gets warmer in the summertime, it just drives me crazy. Like I feel like the get off my lawn guy. I just find myself yelling, close the door, right? And in the moment, I'm like, I'm so mean. Like I'm, why am I always yelling, close the door? I sound like an old man right now, Right? But I'm thinking, the flies are getting in, and I'm going to have to kill them later. That AC bill, it just went up five cents, right? And that, you know, whatever, that compounds, right, on top of each other. It's all going on in my head. I've moralized that. <laughs> I've scared my kids to death about opening and closing the door, turning the lights off. That's another one. Like, I thought growing up, like, why, why my dad and mom care so much about turning off the lights in my room when I leave? I don't know what happens. I, I care about it. 
walk through the house like I'm the last one out of the house and we're leaving. Why is all are the lights on? Why? We're not using the house right now. These lights shouldn't be on. Again, you get it, right? We do this with our politics, right? Like if our political party has a certain platform with issues that we kind of see a certain way, we tend to say, yes, we moralize these issues and we say, and we kind of say, we we get approval from people who say, yeah, you're right. And then we condemn or demonize people who disagree with what our political platform says, right? This is issue with politics, right? We we moralize things that maybe the Bible isn't necessarily clear on that we shouldn't moralize. The whole point is, is as human beings, we like to have rules to make ourselves feel better for keeping them, and we like to have those rules that we're good at to be able to condemn people. We have hearts like Pharisees and religious people. All of us have a little bit of that in some corner of our heart. Let's look at um, the, the second half of verse 6. So after the, the, the Pharisees said all this, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Right? They're waiting for Jesus to say something, right? They put this test before him, and he just bends down calmly and writes in the ground. I love how he's diffusing the situation here. It's a brilliant, um, kind of behind, kind of uh, reading between the lines, it's brilliant in how he just, m- most of us would just want to react. We want to jump into that fight and start arguing. Right, and just escalates everything. But Jesus is just, it's really weird, it's really strange for us to read this, but he's just allowing things to calm down, right? He's taking time. He's allowing silence to kind of rule in this moment. Now, the next question is, what is Jesus writing? This is one of the um, age-old mysteries of this passage, right? So much ink has been spilled over trying to figure out what Jesus wrote, and my first thing on this is, like, the Bible doesn't tell us, so it must not be that important, right? We shouldn't probably waste a lot of time on it. But there, there, there are some things we can throw out here, right? Maybe there, there are some commentators who think that he's writing all the names of the Pharisees and religious, religious, religious leaders, like kind of like a naughty list, right? Like, I'm going to remember you, right? I'm going to turn this list into my father, all of you who are bringing this woman before, right? Maybe some think he's writing the Ten Commandments, right? Because the law is kind of the, a topic here. So he's writing the Ten Commandments on the ground. And we have no uh, evidence of that. Maybe he's writing, like telling the tight end to go on a shallow cross and Peter to run a skinny post, right? Like we would do in the backyard, right? Like I don't know what he's writing here on the ground. But here's what one commentator says. And I think he's on to something, right? He is, one thing, when, imagine him doing this. He's taking the attention away from the woman and he's putting it on himself. Right, so up to this point, all the eyes have been on this woman. This is a public trial. And now, by doing something this odd, he's, he's averting all the eyes to him. Because everybody in that crowd, you can imagine, they want to know what he's writing. So now they're not, no longer looking at the woman. He's giving her a break from being the center of attention. He could be thinking of how he's going to respond to this trap. Right? Maybe he's thinking. Right? He's a human. Right? He thinks. He plans. Maybe he's like, hmm, how should I... How should I answer what they're saying. Maybe he's thinking about the trap that they laid before him. Or maybe he wants to give them time, just the silence, the uncomfortable silence for them to realize how they've gone wrong in this situation. Verse 7, and as they continue to ask him, so they're, they're asking him over and over, it seems like, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. 
He does it again. He does it, the, the, the riding on the ground thing again. They're continuing to ask him. They are so single-minded in wanting to trap Jesus. Like, what do you think? What are you going to say? They just want to know how they can trap him and corner him in one of these, um, these kind of situations that we laid out uh, before. And then he says, verse 7, he, he's, he, he, they brought up the law, and he's like, okay, you want to play that game? You want to play this game with the law? Okay, those of you who are perfect, those of you who are without sin, those of you who want to be treated at the same harshness in the same way, throw the stones. Start stoning her, right? Go for it, you all, you all without sin. If you, can, if you can judge this case perfectly, and you are a perfect judge, go ahead and throw the first stone. Now, to be clear here, Jesus isn't voiding um, civil and criminal justice. He's not doing that. But what he wants us to see and he wants to do in this moment is to check the motives of the Pharisees and check the motives of us, the hearers and the audience who are watching and observing and kind of we're putting ourselves in the place of the Pharisees but also in the place of the woman. And what he's saying here that God's law is meant to be a tool of conviction. God's law is meant to be a, is a mirror that is held up before us that causes us to see our sin and our brokenness and, and causes us to run to Jesus and find grace in him. God's law was not meant to be a tool to use as comparison and to see as, oh, I'm better than that person in this particular area, and then use it to beat someone over the head in their guilt and their shame. That is not why God's law is to be used. Now, it's used to expose our sin, it is, it is supposed to be used to do that, but not as a compare, to, to compare ourselves to others. Yes, we've seen the law speaks to the woman's adultery, but it also speaks to the man who committed the adultery with her, and he's not there. It also speaks to the Pharisees' self-righteousness. It also speaks to my issues and your issues and all the other people who were there's issues as well. The law speaks to all of it. And under the law, we are all condemned because we're not perfect. We fall short. This is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to level the playing field by really getting underneath the motives of the Pharisees in this moment. He's saying, use it correctly. Use the law correctly. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us an example of this, right? He says, it's okay to be worried about the speck in your brother's or sister's eye. It's okay. But what does he say? But first, take the log out of your own eye. All of your junk, all of your issues, don't approach someone and help them with the speck when you are unrepentant and you're not, you're, you have no self-awareness of your own sin, there's no humility, you've never experienced grace, like don't come to another person and try to pull their, the, the, the splinter out of their eye when you have a log in your eye. This is what he's trying to help us understand in this passage. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Yeah, that's, I always thought that was interesting um, that's put in there, right? The older ones. Maybe as you get older, you become more aware of your sin. Maybe the, the hard knocks of life had, have made you a little bit more humble, and you're like, yeah, maybe we've overreacted here. And they left. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And of course they go away, because they know that in this situation, there's only one perfect judge in that moment, and it is Jesus. And he is clearly in control of this kind of mock proceeding or this whatever this is called out here in the public here. Jesus has control of the situation. And Jesus has answered them in a way, and it's beautiful that he shows he takes the Bible seriously, right? Like he actually, he says, okay, 
right? If you want to go Old Testament, if you want me to uphold the law, then of course, it's stoner. If, you, if y'all don't have sin, stoner. Like he, he, kind of, he kind of lifts up the law in a sense. He, he doesn't ignore it. He says, hey, yeah, you can use the law in this situation. Um, but he also shows so much compassion on the woman here. We're going to see that more here in a second. But he, he shows us that we can come to him. That we're all in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. And he has compassion on us. So Jesus is just so awesome. He's so great. It's so beautiful how he, he get, tries, they try to trap him. They try to trick him. And yet he, up, he, he, he points out the law. That, yeah, you're right to quote this law here. But here's the deal. You're using it wrong. And therefore that leads him to have compassion on um, the woman here who's in, who, who knows she's guilty. She's, she, she's shame-ridden right now. Their trap has failed. So the question for us as it relates to the Pharisees or the woman, are, do you have a clear awareness of your sin? Are you aware of the log in your own eye? Do you spend as much time or should be more looking at your own junk than you do the junk of others? Are you constantly going around trying to pick the specks out of your brother's and sister's eyes, or maybe even people who aren't Christians, and yet you aren't doing the work to humble yourself, realizing that you have your own junk and your own issues to deal with. And one danger thing I've seen a lot, even my, in my own life here, when somebody else does something wrong, it's because of their sin. We're quick to jump to that. But when we do something wrong, it's because of our circumstances. Oh, I've had a rough day, or it's that other person's fault or my spouse is this, or my kids are driving me crazy, or work's been hard. That's, those are all just circumstantial, right? We still have the choice, right? No, it's, it's our sin. And we're so, we're so um, slow to acknowledge our own sin in situations, and quickly, when someone else um, does something wrong to us, we forget, hey, maybe they've had a bad day too. Maybe they're going through some stuff right now that's causing them to act out that way, and it allows, it softens our response to them, and actually helps us approach them more gently, not, not, avo- not avoiding the speck. Again, Jesus doesn't say we should avoid specks in people's eyes. He doesn't say that. He says, wait a minute. Like, deal with your own junk first, and then you can come, and we can help one another grow and fight our sin. We must deal with our own sin first. Verse 10, look how Jesus responds to her. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, or she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And notice this is the first time in the passage that someone has really, like, addressed her directly. She's been the center of attention in this kind of fake trial here, and she's just been the object. The Pharisees have been talking about her to Jesus, to the crowd. And finally, Jesus looks at her, locks eyes with her, and then he asks her questions. He doesn't make statements. He didn't say, okay, all right, all right, lady, let's talk about your sin. No. He says, woman. And, and even uh, if you get underneath of the original language here, the tenses and the way Jesus says this of, 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 of this statement is very gentle. It's the most gentle way you can address someone in this situation. Let me ask her questions. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And we can learn a lot from Jesus. Um, we can learn a lot how he asks questions here to disarm her. 
He didn't come at her with statements. He didn't come at her with, hey, yeah, let's now let's talk about your sin. No, he, he asks her. He draws th- stuff out of her. He knows the answer. He knows everything about this woman. But he uses questions to draw things out of her. And think about her in this situation. She's now standing before Jesus. Right? A man who obviously knows about the adultery, but now no, no, she knows that he probably knows more about her. All the sin she's ever committed. All the junk in her life. And she's standing there, and, but you have this, this, this male figure now looking at her in a, in a gentle way. Accepting her, talking to her, treating her like a human being. And Jesus knows where he wants to go from this. He's asking her questions to get there. But another thing I love about this is he doesn't ignore her sin. Once again, he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of like gloss over that. Right? He's gentle with her. Like he's using, he's, 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 he's taking the speck out of her life here. He's kind of modeling what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He tells her that no one's condemning her, implying that there's something, she has something really to be condemned about. But he's saying, has no one condemned you? He doesn't say that she hasn't sinned. He might as well be saying, I forgive your sin. And then he adds, go and sin no more. That's all he has to say. Right? Just imagine the freedom that this woman has now. I wish we knew her name, but we don't have her name. Um, imagine the freedom she has. The, 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 the weight that's been lifting, lifted off her shoulders. Like, this is repentance, right? She has gone through what repentance looks like. You think she feels guilt about her sin? Absolutely. The law of God was about to be exercised on her. But yet Jesus comes and he shows her grace and compassion and forgives her. Then it says, go and sin no more. And commentators have pointed out that he didn't just restore her dignity in that moment by addressing her. He actually restored her, her agency. Like he gives her something to do. He, get, he says, go and sin no more, right? You're, you're, you're a woman. You have responsibility for your actions. Go and sin no more. I love how she responds to Jesus as well. Some, when she says, no one, Lord, in answering her question, uh, some translations um, say, no one, sir. It's just this very like respectful and reverent way she responds to him. She has this health, healthy reverence for Jesus in this situation. This is a model example of what Jesus, um, what we think maybe Jesus thought, thought of when he was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit in the, ter- in the Sermon on the Mount, or blessed are the brokenhearted. Right? This is a poor in spirit woman in this moment. She's, she's brokenhearted, and Jesus shows her grace. So let's talk about us. Maybe some of you are like this woman, constantly dealing with shame and guilt. And you have no issue putting yourself in the place of this woman in this moment. But you need to hear what Jesus says to her. This morning, if this is you, you need to hear him say, neither do I condemn you. And just how he brought her in, he, he, he restored her, he reconciled her to himself in this moment. And feel, we need to, you need to feel the grace and feel the love and feel the compassion of Jesus and believe it and meditate on it and think about it as much as you need to, to for, for, for the spirit to take away that shame and guilt. And maybe you're someone here who's not a believer, 
in Jesus. Maybe this is your first time in church in a while. I'm really glad that you're here. But if that describes you, I'm sure it does to some degree. Like, what do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame if you don't have a relationship with Jesus? So the major part of the good news of the gospel is being able to come to him and trust that he forgives you, not based upon your good works, based upon his work. This is the good news. So put faith in him this morning. Trust him. Admit that you need a savior. Admit that you don't know what to do with your shame and your guilt. Admit that you don't know what to do with your, your, your self-righteousness and these rules that we create to kind of play this game of being accepted, but also being able to look down upon people. We're all guilty of this. See, when one experiences this from Jesus, this forgiveness, this grace, this mercy, they are forever changed. And this is why we should never forget the good news of the gospel, the free grace of God found in Jesus. Again, back to the foundation and the point of this whole sermon is the foundation of our righteousness and sanctification, our spiritual growth is grace. It's grace, and that's what this passage is all about. How do we follow Jesus to a greater degree? It's grace. How do we love people to a greater degree? It's through grace. Receiving his grace so that we may be able to honor him and live the way he wants us to live. See, keeping the rules can never make us righteous. Never. If you think Christianity is about being a good person, about rule-keeping, about doing the right thing all the time, and that kind of determines your standing before God, that is not biblical. That is not Christianity. That is, that's enslavement. Freedom comes by admitting that you need a Savior, admitting that you need someone to show you grace and mercy, and resting in that, and finding freedom in that, and then going in and, and, and living a way that honors God. Following Jesus in a way that says, yes, you're the, you're the, you're the fountain of life. You're, you're, you're the living water. You're where I can find abundant life. And you follow him. Galatians 2, 20 through 21 says this. And this is, I think, what uh, Paul here in this letter is connecting the law and the gospel here. Law and grace. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, or if my standing before God came through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Saying if we, were to make, if we can make ourselves righteous through the law and experience freedom and joy through the law, what, why did Jesus come? What's the point of Jesus coming and dying for our sin and, come and rising on the third day if we could be made righteous through the law? It's impossible, and that's what Paul is saying here. Listen to John Calvin in his commentary on John 8. He says, what is the design of the grace of Christ, or what is the purpose of it? It is that the sinner be reconciled to God, may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. Notice the order there. He puts a sinner, which we once were, all, all were in that situation, being reconciled to God. We're brought back into his family. We can call him Father. He loves us. He shows us grace. Now, may honor the author of his salvation by a good and holy life. When we switch the order, we get in trouble. When we, may, when we try to honor the author of our salvation by a good and holy life, and we do that to, in order to receive his grace and mercy, that's called slavery. 
That's why people give up on Christianity, because there's no good news found in that. A couple of quick application points. Number one, we should, we should strive to be this kind of presence that Jesus shows us, right? In this passage, when, when we go into a place that's chaotic, that's filled with anxiety, where people are arguing, where people are fighting, we should be agents of peace. We should be able to go in, assess the situation, ask questions, right? Diffuse the situation. The way in, so just going back and reading this passage through that lens, how do we be a calm and anxious presence everywhere we go, in our workplace, at home, right? Where we're, where we're playing, where we're having fun, all of those places. Number two, we must remember God's grace. And we just talked about that. Remember God's grace that he has for you. And that is not because of your works. It's because of Jesus' work. And three, we have to learn how to apply God's grace, the gospel, to those, those areas of self-righteousness that I brought up earlier. Like the little things that we moralize, the little things that we turn into rules, that we turn into law, we have, to, we have to ask the question, why am I prone to make this rule? For me, why am I so prone? I make light of like yelling at my kids to close the door, but I don't want my kids, I, I don't want my kids to hear me yelling at them for closing the door all day long, right? That's horrible for them to grow up that way. So I need to deal with that. Like, what, why do I do that? Is it control? Is it, I know I'm going to have to take time out of my life later to kill these flies? Again, sounds silly, but that's really what I'm thinking. I'm being really selfish. Like, who cares if they're, they're seven and two, right? Like, I don't want their six and two. I don't, I don't care if, you know, I don't want them to remember 10 years from now, oh, yeah, my dad used to always yell at me when the door was open. No. So I need to deal with that. So why do I find righteousness in that? Why do I think that is the way people should act all the time? And again, that can go really deep. But ultimately, the answer is I'm not looking to the gospel. I'm not willing to receive God's grace and his goodness in that particular area of my life. And we have to do the work there. And I'll say this, the context of this work, obviously it's an individual thing, but we need to, this comes up most often in, in marriage. Those of you who are married, y'all probably have these things all the time with your spouse, like, you're upset with something they do, they're upset with something you do, and you're moralizing your expectations, or you're moralizing your preferences. Maybe it's in parenting, like the example I gave. Maybe it's with your roommates. Maybe it's in your gospel community. Maybe there's people in your gospel community that drive you crazy or frustrate you because they do this a certain way, and it's different than the way you do it, and you are frustrated with them because they do it different than you. So you need to deal with that. Again, allow the relationships in your life to kind of hold up a mirror to the work you need to do in this particular area. What makes you angry? What frustrates you? What causes to steal your joy? And apply the gospel to those areas. Let's pray. Father, even though we've talked about how this may not be as authoritative as the rest of Scripture, this particular passage, this just echoes the character of your son all throughout the scriptures, his love, his compassion, his ability to not forget about the law because it is scripture, but also using the law appropriately to show people that they need grace, that they need love. So I pray this morning, wherever we found ourselves in this story and whatever things we struggle with as far as righteousness or our sin or our shame, I pray that we would come to you, that we would give that to you, 
that we would hide or run or medicate or ignore these things, that we would do the hard work of coming to you and allowing your spirit to change us, to help us repent, to help us change, to help us grow, to help love other people better. Help us, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.